Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with the scripture reading and a message. We would love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. If you are here in Berkeley, Epworth's worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 1953 Hopkins on the corner of Napa and Hopkins. Or if you connect with our podcast from further away, we would invite you to visit our website, epworthberkeley.org. We'd invite you to keep seeking to grow in faith and to stop by the next time you're in Berkeley. I'm Greg Richardson, a member of Epworth, and as I was uh, preparing for this reading, I had two vivid memories come up that I want to share. When I was an undergraduate at Indiana University, 1967-71, you do the math, I used to listen on Sunday mornings to the broadcast of Sister Grace Hillenburg from the Westside Trinity Pentecostal Church. 417 West House Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47401. It only had one zip code in those days. Sister Grace was an inspired woman, and I finally went to her church before I left Bloomington, where I was very warmly received, and at some point, without realizing it, led to the altar, hands were laid on me, and tongues were spoken. And... I didn't know what to make of all this, but I was very moved that they wanted to share it with me. The second memory was when I was in the Christian ministry in the National Parks in Yellowstone Park in 1967. And our little community church was shared by a number of denominations, one of which were the Mormons, the LDS church. They took their night of the week not to have a service, but to sing together while they filled boxes with food and clothing and diapers for the people in their community who needed these things. And I thought at the time, this is the Christian work. They're doing things for their people, and it very much impressed me. The verses I'm going to read from Acts 2 are about the early days of the church and how the events and the actions inspired others uh, to become Christians. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. 
All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Methodists have a funny thing that we say to each other. I remember my grandmother in particular, a lifelong and generations back Methodist, saying this to me. Are you going on to perfection? Are you going on to perfection? And when, when Methodist clergy are ordained, we answer this same historic question. Are you going on to perfection? Which is then followed by, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? Now, as a child, this question struck me as odd. I thought perfectionism was not a good thing. And often, as a word of grace, when I had done something wrong or made a mistake, my mom would say to me, well, nobody's perfect. But Methodist perfection isn't perfectionism. It's a trust that in putting our whole selves in God, we can reach a kind of maturity that is perhaps better termed as spiritual fullness or embodying the vision that God has for us and for our lives together. We focus on that on an individual level when we seek what we call personal holiness. This striving on a personal level has always been a mark of the Methodist movement, while at the same time we understand that our striving to be like God manifests in a collective way in the world. And when we do this, we are being the church that God hopes we will be. The United Methodist Church, as a collection of imperfect humans, is also going on to perfection. Like us as individuals, we as the church are not there yet. We need each other's help and guidance and forgiveness and support if we are going to be the people and indeed if we are going to be the church that is Christ's presence on earth. The United Methodist Church is currently at a watershed moment. At the end of February, and if you've been reading our newsletter and the, and the weekly e-bulletin, you've read from me these, the columns and the articles. At, at the end of February, delegates from all over uh, the world, the Methodist world, will gather in St. Louis to vote on plans that are designed to move us forward from our very painful impasse on the role of LGBTQ persons in our denomination. As a denomination, we have spent precious time and money on church trials, have rejected gifted candidates for ministry, have told some of God's children that we are not worthy of God's love and grace, and have failed to offer the shepherding and loving ministry of the church. We can't do this anymore. Some churches, like Epworth, have refused to limit God's love as a part of the reconciling movement that is now 34 years old. 
struggling to change the church's excluding and condemning teaching. But our LGBTQ siblings, myself and Judy Kyle as one of our lay leaders and Randall Miller as one of our delegates to the General Conference and many others still face spiritual violence in this denomination. And what we know of violence, of course, is that violence begets violence. So that all of us are harmed by this discrimination. We know this. And so at this moment, there is a very real possibility that the conference in St. Louis could end in splitting the United Methodist Church or that a schism could be announced 60 days after the close of the conference. And so we need to be ready. Because, friends, God is always doing something and working things together for good, no matter how dark or how dire things seem. There is always a space to work in for good. There is always a crack where delight is trying to get in. So there are three primary plans that are going to be considered at this special general conference. One is called the Connectional Conference Plan. One is called the Traditionalist Plan. And one is called the One Church Plan. The Connectional Conference Plan allows churches and clergy and bishops to join a non-geographic body based on belief. It's the plan that came out of the commission that was set up by the bishops in 2016 to help move us forward. But unfortunately, this particular plan is very complicated, and it has it was a, it was a great attempt to do a lot of things, but it has so many moving parts, and it needs so many constitutional amendments that it will probably take 10 years to implement, and it's really not being considered as something that's very viable and will likely not move forward in the general conference. The other two plans, the traditionalist plan and the one church plan, have the highest probability of prevailing. The traditionalist plan seeks to strengthen and enforce rules against LGBTQ clergy and reconciling churches. Thus, progressive conferences such as the one we are in, ours, Cal Nevada, which covers the northern half of California and most of Nevada, would be invited or forced to leave if we did not certify that we would enforce the strengthened rules. This plan is mean-spirited, punitive, and does not reflect the love of God. Unfortunately, it has support, which is why we are in this position as a denomination in the first place. The third plan, the One Church Plan, does offer us a way forward. It's not perfect, but it does remove the discriminatory language from the Methodist rule book, and it gives us greater freedom as a progressive conference to do what we need to do to engage in the ministry that we are called to do. In more conservative conferences, there is room in the One Church Plan to continue going on to perfection. Which is not to say we who embrace LGBTQ persons as an essential part of the body of Christ are perfect, but I do believe we have this part figured out. <laughs> the One Church Plan allows some grace for the reality that we are all going on to perfection, but we're not there yet. 
It would significantly decrease, if not eliminate, the number of church trials we're experiencing. And it has the support of the, uh, a supermajority of the bishops and many conferences around the globe. Will it pass? I don't know. So we're taking our worship today to learn about this process because this is a critical moment. We don't, we don't do this. We don't change our worship and, uh, move from our typical order of worship except in very rare circumstances. And so we're taking our worship today to learn about the process and about these plans because ultimately we are the church. We are not passive observers waiting to find out what happens in St. Louis, but we are asked to be full participants with God and with each other. It's possible that we as a church might be asked to vote on some outcome of this special conference and decide with whom or with what entity we will join. I think that's unlikely, but we need to be prepared. We need to remember who we are, a loving, welcoming, healing, progressive, justice-seeking, knowledge-desiring, outreaching, going-on-to-perfection body of Christians. The church. May we have courage as Jesus had courage, and may we remember the courage and faithfulness of all those who have run this race before before us, showing us a more perfect way to love and to live, and may we act in ways that ensure a presence of Christ on earth that provides a community of wholeness for generations to come. Amen. Amen.